everyone. Welcome to Sleep On It, the podcast for sleeping your way to better health. And I'm Nana. And I'm Yingying. Today, we're going to talk about the brain-gut connection. It's such an exciting topic, and we're so excited to talk about the gut and how it impacts pretty much all aspects of our health, but how important the new trend of gut microbiome is. Exactly. And in our previous episode, we had briefly touched on it. It just comes up because it's so interconnected to all the topics that we've talked about so far in season one. The idea that brain health also equals gut health. And before we talked about how the gut is a mini brain or a second brain, I think anecdotally, we can all relate to that as well. Even if we didn't know that there is a scientific brain gut connection or access, like how many times have we felt really nervous right before tests, like before the SATs or before you're about to meet someone you're really excited to meet. And then you start feeling this problem, Water like, you know, this. <laughs> Like you really need to use the restroom suddenly. You're like, yeah. I didn't need to go before. And suddenly I need, why is my body telling me I need to use the restroom? It's yeah. because of that. There's a communication that's happening between the two, whether based on what you're feeling. That's exactly right. And I definitely think a lot of people can relate to that. You know, what is the gut and what is the gut microbiome? Start off by introducing that concept because it may be unfamiliar to a lot of people technically what that is. And the gut, which is comprised of basically, you know, your whole digestive system, starting with your stomach, your small intestine, and your large intestine, is filled with all these living microorganisms and different types and species of bacteria. And in fact, there is over a hundred trillion different microorganisms living in your digestive tract. So it is a living, we, we all can, we're hosting kind of, trillions of living beings within us. It's yeah. like the Amazon inside of you. And <laughs> I mean, yeah. to or aliens. <laughs> yeah, or aliens. And yeah. this microbiome mm-hmm. is responsible for controlling all these genes that influence how we digest food, what, what our immunity levels are, hormones, as well as that impact, you know, downstream things like we were talking about earlier, such as our mood. And everyone's gut microbiome is different. And it's almost like your own unique fingerprint because the gut microbiome is influenced by the environment around us, what and how we eat, uh, what time of day we eat, and where we live in fact. You can even think about it as when does the gut microbiome start beginning in our life? And it's when we're born, we have very little diversity of our gut microbiome. In fact, how we're born, whether it's through a vaginal delivery or a C-section, the diversity of the microbiome is not only important in our gut, but it's also important on our skin. And our skin is host to diverse flora as well. And it's a part of having healthy skin. That's why having indiscriminate use of antibiotics or overly using excessive sterile solutions can disrupt the normal microbiome of our skin even and in our gut, which then has downstream effects, which may not always be good. Yeah, we had talked about how um, there's now probiotic skin serums. And also, you know, back in the day, we always put uh, yogurt or other things on our skin because there's this almost this innate understanding that those things can help. But I never thought of it that there's also because there's microbiomes living on your skin as well. I think the key important point about when thinking about the microbiome is the word balance. Mm-hmm. And we need the right balance of good and bad bacteria in our gut in order to live in a balanced way without diseases and infections. A lot of people are experiencing symptoms of 
irritable bowel syndrome or excessive bloating or gas, even diseases outside of the gastrointestinal system, such as neurological diseases, such as multiple sclerosis or neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. Even Even anxiety, depression is related to the microbiome. Exactly. And we can talk more about how the gut microbiome may influence the onset or bring about these disease states. Yeah. I was also reading that there's good and bad bacteria. Is it because in terms of what hormones or chemicals these specific bacteria create based on what the food they, they encounter? Is that the difference between good and bad bacteria? Yeah, so it's among the different bacterial species that live in your gut, there are some that are responsible for digestion. There are some responsible for making sure that they're occupying the right receptors in your gut so that when you ingest you know, food that may have different viral or bacterial substances that are not good for you, that they're not able to bind and get into your gut because these other bacteria are already yeah. taking up that space. Interesting. So, so there's almost like you're saying, because you need this balance, it's because you also eat such a variety of foods or you encounter a variety of toxins or good bacteria, bad bacteria from your food. So it's almost like they need to all come together and some of them maybe cancel each other or enhance each other. So that's why you're saying you can't just have one kind Kind, um, exactly. Present. And there's this concept of uh, dysbiosis of your gut in, in, the, in a lot of the research and literature, which is being looked at, which what that means is that the bacteria in your gut are not in harmony, which is called symbiosis, but rather they're out of balance and they're negatively influencing each other and then ultimately end up in dysbiosis. That's sort of the technical term for thinking about just an off-balance gut. That is so cool. So I would love to dive into this bio-directional signaling between the brain and the gut because it's not just one way. They kind of both talk to each other all the time and influence how they're doing or at least letting them know how they're doing. It's almost like they're buddies, <laughs> they're pen pals. How would you, I guess, technically describe this communication process? You're right. It's a bi-directional relationship and they both impact each other. And for instance, thinking about how the gut influences the brain or mood, well, let's actually have our, let's everybody go through the process that maybe (laughs) make it more easy to understand and connect. For instance, today's a hot summer day and it feels like a good day to drink lemonade. I want everyone to close their eyes and think about taking a sip of lemonade. And I don't know about you, but when I just did that, what did you feel, actually? I felt a tingle in my saliva glands. <laughs> I'm also yeah, watering. Yeah, we're almost salivating. And the reason is because digestion begins in the brain and thinking about food. And it highlights the importance of being mindful when you're eating because being mindful of what you're eating and thinking about the process of eating actually triggers the onset of proper digestion and making sure that bodies start releasing the enzymes and acids it needs in order to not only break down the food products, but also optimally absorb the food products. So we do end up getting those essential nutrients. That's the very simplistic way, you know, when the brain starts thinking about digestion. Now, let's say you've eaten a really good meal full of protein. Like for instance, let's say you've had grilled chicken on a salad, right? So a lot of good protein and and a lot of good fiber there. So as soon as you eat that, 
and, and it gets into your stomach within seconds, it sends signals to your brain already. As you're absorbing these and digesting these food and absorbing these nutrients, you're absorbing the building blocks of hormones that you need in your brain. In fact, commonly previously believed that serotonin was primarily made in your brain. But I think studies have shown that anywhere from 70, 90% of the serotonin that you make is made in your gut. So there's neurons in the gut, which I never realized (laughs) before, because it's almost like a piece of your brain kind of went into your gut and like built into your gut. And there's billions of neurons in your brain, but there's also 500 million neurons in your gut. You're right. There are, and that is the mechanism. So the nervous cells in your gut are connected to your spinal cord in your brain. It's like a highway. They Mm -hmm. communicate with each other and they're sending signals to each other constantly and throughout the day. So So they're saying that this highway is called the, well, there's many nerves, I guess, that connect the brain in the gut, but the biggest one is called the vagus nerve, which we also probably heard that term a lot, the vagus nerve. I was like, what is the importance of the vagus nerve? Because I know the vagus nerve is always talked about in terms of stress as well. So maybe we can touch on that later. That's a great point. Let's talk about the vagus nerve and what it means. Mm -hmm. So I think let's imagine a situation where you're in high stress before an exam or before a really important meeting or something like that. And you feel those butterflies in your stomach that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Your vagus nerve is primarily responsible for that. So what it does, it starts influencing your gut. Your gut will start making noises. You'll maybe some people, there are people who have such bad anxiety that results in uh, diarrhea or acid reflux. So it's pretty much your gut is going awry. It's not functioning like it's supposed to because the chemicals and the hormones are off. And so that's one way where your mood state or your emotional state directly impacts your digestive system. Mm-hmm. So it causes like inflammatory or stress response because since it's bi-directional, I can see how if you're stressed, the stress hormones might travel via the vagus nerve to your gut and cause all those GI disruptions. But since it's bi-directional, it can also go the other way around. So let's say you're eating food that's too high in salt or too processed. I heard that it can also cause a similar immune response in your gut and that can then travel to your brain and cause those mood disruptions or foggy thinking. That's right. And so the question is why and how? I know that everybody who is reading anything about wellness or nutrition, of course, has come across take prebiotics or take probiotics and making sure that we have a diverse gut microbiome. And that is the premise of preventing sort of cognitive symptoms, mood symptoms that you were just talking about. Why does that matter? I think it's because, you know, when you eat processed foods, those processed foods don't have the bacteria or the ecological makeup and the environment that can contribute and further improve our gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. So when you eat artificial sweeteners or sugar in general, which has a lot of addictive potential and can make you go either really quickly high or down like sugar crashes or sugar highs, um, it it wreaks havoc on our nervous system and our mood. Yes. And that actually leads back to what we're talking about with food cravings, because we always wonder why do we have, we crave like sugary foods when we start eating really badly. And it's because um, all the bacteria, when they absorb all that sugar, high sugar, high energy foods, they send a signal, almost like a distress signal to your brain, like an SOS signal to your brain. And then your brain responds by saying like, okay, then we need more of it because it's so addictive. It's almost like they get it and then it, it causes havoc within them. And the only way that your brain can think of compensating is to eat more of that sugary or processed foods to kind of satisfy the signal. But if you deprive them 
after a few weeks, like if you don't eat those foods, your brain will actually recover back to normal and then your cravings will also stop and end. So at least it goes back. Like you can reverse the effect, which is really good. And that's the entire message that I think the research is showing in gut microbiome is that you can actually heal yourself and recover from inflammatory conditions like multiple sclerosis or inflammatory bowel disease by changing the way you eat. And it is a reversible process. Like you can change your gut microbiome for the better to get rid of addiction, to get rid of headaches mm-hmm. or whatever ailments that, you know, people may be suffering from as a result of what they eat. Yeah. And also just to touch on something you mentioned before is that I also thought it was so interesting that there are probiotic versus prebiotic foods. So probiotic foods are foods that already that have the living bacteria in it, like you mentioned. So that includes like yogurt, kimchi, which I love, and sour pickles, which I know is very controversial. Oh, even miso soup, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, any real fermented products, like even I think maybe tofu, kefir, any any kind of fermented product should have some probiotics. And then there's prebiotics, which are foods that don't contain bacteria, but they feed the bacteria in terms of like providing the proper nutrition to it. And that includes um, honey, which I thought was really cool, asparagus, legumes, legumes, I hope I'm saying that right, and also red wine, which I felt really happy about. I was like, yes, red wine. It's just like a whole, like you said, that variety of really good foods for you. They say you need to pair them two together to really have the best microbiome flora in your body. That's a great food list. And also, I think eating foods that we find in the natural world, like Mm -hmm. fresh fruits, vegetables. Brought a very good point that in general, plant-based diet is highly encouraged. So like having at least two thirds of your plate have some sort of vegetables. Yeah, and different colors and just making it a really largely plant-based diet because that can really, really improve the diversity of your gut. And likewise, kind of limit animal products or especially red meat. There was that really popular book, The China Study, that came out. And it was one of the first like large-scale studies really highlighting how red meat is related to all these chronic diseases and like cancers and such. And so it really highlighted the importance of introducing more plant in your diet. And it's so interesting because in the U.S., for example, meat is such a profound presence on the table versus in other countries, meat is usually just seen as like a luxury, like a smaller thing. And so it's kind of having to reverse our thinking about meat as the main course. Yeah, I think that in the Western world and the Western diet, I think we're trying to move away from it, but it it has been traditionally centered around more luxurious products like dairy, cheeses, meats. And although in small quantities, they can be really helpful. I think the key is the moderation and maybe limiting that to once or twice a week. And that's why I I one day want to really have a farm, like just a, Mm -hmm. even if it just like starts off small with a garden in my backyard where I can just like grow my own vegetables and fruits. I think, you know, having and controlling like, you know, what kind of compounds I use to make them, I think just being able to have like a access to those things on a daily basis can make a big difference in fighting off these diseases. That's the dream one day. <laughs> well, it's funny because um, my uncle has a uh, lemon tree and he says his neighbors keep, this is totally off topic, but he says his neighbors keep coming and stealing his lemons. <laughs> and he's like, ah. And then even my mom calls him. It's like, can you bring some more lemons over? I feel like anytime someone has like an avocado tree or a lemon tree or tomatoes or fruit tree, people really want to get access to them. You know? Yeah, actually, that's one of the things I really loved about California. Every time I go there, I mean, it's amazing. Like anywhere you go, there are just 
lemon trees, orange trees, like different diversity of lime trees. Like people have avocado trees in their backyards. Like it's amazing. It's just a part of the natural flora, which is so unique because you don't find that here on the East coast. Like you might find like some berry trees around, but you don't really see those fruit trees that you see in California. And I think, you know, appreciating the diversity around you and really trying to incorporate that in your diet is just so important. It's really going back to the basics, like nothing really fancy. And it made me, you know, also rethink about, you know, all these different diet fads that come along, whether it's the low carb diet, the keto diet, sort of the Atkins diet, you name it. It's interesting to know that, you know, it's not about eliminating foods from your diets, but rather restructuring how we think about the type of foods that we eat, just making it plant-based, thinking about colors, thinking about diversity, because that's what's going in our bodies. Like Um, having fun and enjoying your food and knowing that you're now that we know there's a scientific basis that food can make you happy with its release of serotonin in your gut, that kind of changes things, doesn't it? Because now you know that you are literally what you eat. You have the power within you to change how you feel by what you're eating. And the idea that you're eating the rainbow, like you said, Nina, kind of puts a more positive turn in terms of changing your diet. In preparing for our talk today, I mean, reading about how fecal transplants in um, rats, for instance, (laughs) aka the poop pills. (laughs) Yeah, the poop pills. I mean, for instance, they've tried this on a number of different conditions, but they took rats with depression, took their feces and implanted them into normal rats. And those normal rats ended up getting depression. And likewise, they did it with fat rats and not fat rats. And they took um, the fecal transplants of fat rats, put them in thin rats, and the thin rats became fat. And likewise, the thin rats, they took the feces and put in the fat and rats and the fat rats became thin. So it was like, it's all in the feces, which is it's all in the gut. I mean, that's incredible. Like, the fact it that it's very cool that it could actually cause those changes, you know, by having the healthy bacteria and giving it to someone that has very unhealthy bacteria and then allow them to change completely how they're feeling. And I know it's being used right now for weight loss primarily uh, because of the whole what we talked about, the food cravings and how it's signaling to the brain. But I love that, like you said, it could also be impacted with autism, Alzheimer's, potentially insulin resistance, even eczema and multicellulose. There's a whole host of possibilities with these fecal transplant. And I think it's empowering. I think it's enlightening to know that it's actually maybe something we can control because traditionally these conditions are thought to be, okay, I'm just afflicted with it, or I was inherited with it. And maybe that might have some small truth to it with our inheritance and gene patterns, but Mm -hmm. it's likely changeable with how we eat and what Mm -hmm. we eat. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I love that you were talking about all the studies with the mice um, and them playing around with their gut and also, you know, the whole gut brain connection. Because I was reading somewhere how, for example, mice that had certain probiotic diets, they had an increase in GABA production, which is, I hope I'm saying this right, gamma amino butric acid. It takes me back to oh. biochemistry when we had to be I'm going to call it GABA. I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you uh, go ahead and I'm going to just, you know, post oh. that one. But um, GABA production is known to also decrease anxiety and depression feelings within you. And so I thought that was really cool. You know, maybe the idea that of those sort of diet can also inc- decrease your anxiety. Yeah. And they're finding that, you know, there might be some gut 
potential or basis for disease states like major depression, as well as schizophrenia, which, you know, our research has been showing that they're more inflammatory states or autoimmune states. And autoimmune is just a fancy term for saying that our body's immune system is attacking our our own cells or our own organs. And so why does this come about? And it could be because, you know, a lot of the research is showing that maybe lying in the gut, what we eat. Inflammation building in your body. But the beautiful thing about all this is that you can rewire it. You can reintroduce good bacteria into your gut by what you eat. And um, And you can decrease the number of inflammatory markers that are in your body within, you know, a couple of days or weeks with the change in lifestyle. And also just being, bringing back to our theme of being mindful of what we, of just eating. I mean, even like being aware when you eat that helps you digest your food. Like I remember when in residency, I was in such a rush. I never had like time to really sit down and eat like a meal. And it was almost always about just getting sustenance. And of course, when you don't have good sleep, you're in a high stress state and you have no time, you're going to probably make that. I I remember not making, you know, the best decisions about food. I might have picked up like a couple of slices of pizza or something like that. But when you don't think about what you eat and you eat in a hurry, you're missing half the digestion. So so your body's not digesting the, even whatever nutrients are in those foods. Alternatively, it's also important in weight loss too. For instance, when you take the time to eat your meals and maybe you take the time to eat your meals among family or friends and you eat slower and you eat less and you feel more satiated. I mean, it's all connected. It's not things that we can actually see, but we definitely feel and maybe often take for granted. That totally reminds me of the concept of leaky gut because, you know, all our gut in general is not completely impenetrable or impermeable. There is a little bit of um, coals or cracks that lets things in and out. But if you have great gut health, it's the permeability is reasonable in your gut. But when you start, like you're saying, eating hurry or like getting really stressed and then eating poor foods, that will slowly cause cracks in your wall. Yeah, yeah. it's all breaking down. It's crumbling. And the example of that is eating foods that maybe we're not naturally inclined to eat. Like there are some people that, for instance, take lactose and tolerance, right? So mm-hmm. this is, I'm going to tell like a personal sort of yeah. story here that may be a little bit off tangent, maybe not, but oh. I used to drink regular, you know, cow's milk as a kid and cereal at that time, almond milk or these other soy milks weren't as popular, right? But there is a notion that it's very healthy for you and it might have some health benefits. I'm not saying that it's, you know, you know it does have vitamin D, like, calcium, right, some mal- you know, some but in very small moderation. Now I can't drink milk. I just can't tolerate it. I don't think that I have the intestinal lining to drink regular milk. And they've looked at sort of the intestinal lining of people that are lactose intolerant and those that are not. And it's different. Like the lining is different. Oh. The microbiome is different. It's physically looks different. And, microbiome. Yeah. And the thought is like after you're, you're consuming milk and you don't, some people don't even know that, that they're lactose intolerant. I right? just had this image of someone eating a poop pill from a person who is lactose tolerant right before they eat cheese or ice cream. They're like, ah, <laughs> I can now eat my cheese and ice cream. <laughs> Sorry, now I know it's that possible. Energy. One day, it's supposed one day. To. Yeah, <laughs> I guess they must like milk that much. I yeah, know. gotta have that cheese. Count, count me out. But it goes to show that some people think it's okay to have like 
a little bit of gas or it's a natural response to drinking something, but it may not be. And it it may be a time to get alerted. Maybe I'm not digesting milk properly. And my opinion on milk is that humans weren't meant to drink milk from a cow unless you're kids and you're growing. But I kind of want to quickly just touch on the whole concept of leaky gut and uh, building a healthy barrier in your gut. Like if you eat a lot of fiber, it can produce something that's called short chain fatty acids, which is just a very fancy term. But basically, it creates this blood brain barrier, which is a defense against toxins and pathogens. And we always talked about how, you know, there's some viruses that seem to impact the brain too. So is that correct, Nina, that if you have a strong blood brain barrier, maybe some of those pathogens won't cross over from your gut leaking into your blood to your brain? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for instance, like an example of that is botulism toxin found in improperly canned foods, right? As soon as it gets into your gut, it can cause rapid neurological symptoms, including difficulty breathing, salivating and paralysis. So that's a really good example of a toxin manifesting neurologically into your brain really quickly in a matter of like, you know, a very short time. And yes, if you do eat foods to your point, that's correct is if you eat fiber rich foods, it produces chemical reactions in your gut that create a stronger barrier and allow the right things, uh, bad things to pass through into right. the and, your gut. And the good bacteria fighting the bad bacteria too. Yes. So it, it sort of promotes Keeps that. Contained. That's the importance of fiber rich food. And some people may not even know that we don't actually digest the fiber. It's digested by the bacteria and it's mainly for gut health. That's also a key component of food is fiber rich foods, right? So like broccoli, greens, all those really fiber rich foods are going to help protect that gut. Yay. I'm so happy to hear that. And likewise, by having a healthy gut, you're not only keeping bad toxins out, you're keeping all the good nutrition in. So even if you're eating a great healthy diet, you know, you're, you're eating all those smoothies in the morning, if you don't care if you're stressed and the inflammation in your body that can cause those cracks in your gut, because once again, remember the brain and gut are connected, then all those nutrients are just leaking out of your gut and you're not getting the benefits from them. So it is really all connected. Yeah, it is. The gut microbiome is also responsible to allude to what you said, Yingying, which is responsible for a lot of the vitamins and essential nutrients that we need. For instance, folic acid and B12 are important uh, aspects to our health that, you know, make sure that our brain signals function. That's why a healthy gut and healthy brain are related to healthy aging. Because have you ever taken those tests where they can measure what body age you are? And you could be in your 30s and they'll say that your body age is in the 60s. And you're like, what? And vice versa. You can have someone who's like 75, but their body age is like 35. It's amazing. Yeah. And it contributes to non-aging, right? These neurodegenerative diseases occur because our brain function slows down and the signals are not functioning properly. And we need the nutrients produced by our gut to make sure that we're still firing at a fast rate. So memory, cognition, aging, all that stuff is implicated. Exactly. And trying to make sure you don't develop dementia and Alzheimer's or Parkinson's later in life. So we have to start now. So it is really hopeful that our body is a healing machine. But I know you wanted to touch on like sleep as well, because, you know, not only do you need a healthy diet and, you know, exercise and healthy gut and brain, but sleep is also connected with all those things, too. Yeah, in fact, research is showing that the bacteria in our gut also are on a circadian rhythm. And- <laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> 
Sorry. You have a bedtime. <laughs> it is. It's, it's amazing. And in fact, when we sleep, are the bacteria sleep too. And so it's a bi-directional relationship between sleep and gut health. And we know that when we don't sleep properly, we the hormones in our body actually signal us to eat in the improper times, maybe eat too much. The hunger hormones aren't working properly. So it's really the disruptions in our own circadian rhythm that impact the disruptions in the circadian rhythm in our gut that can then lead to a host of health issues like diabetes, obesity, inflammatory disorders. So that's why we're seeing that people that have circadian misalignment, such as shift workers, are at long-term risk for a lot of these disorders. These living beings in our gut are very much living and they have their own circadian rhythm. They're fighting off and they're quite active in our gut and we want to keep them living. So yeah, the, the importance of timely eating as well. For instance, when we eat too late into the night, it makes our body start digesting, right? And when we digest, our body temperature goes up. And when it goes up, it doesn't signal sleep because as we've talked about in prior episodes, it's the drop in body temperature that promotes sleep. And so that's why when you have those late night munchies, oftentimes it can take a really long time to fall asleep that night because the physiology is all connected. I think my takeaway from this message and the amazing work that's being done in the brain gut health is that healthy gut, healthy life, having a balanced gut is everything. So whether we're struggling with mood or you know anxiety, depression, or GI problems, um, stress especially, I think all of those are connected. So we can't leave any of those out. Agreed. I mean, everything is a big circle, and you know, in our prior episodes, we touched on the different systems. We touched on musculoskeletal health. We touched on pain. We touched on mood and neuroplasticity. And we could not leave out the importance of gut health and how that's influenced by all of the things above, you know, to think about the body in a very holistic perspective as we do can be really helpful in warding off a lot of these negative things that you mentioned. So hope that this brings light to people in how they think about food, how they think about food choices, and not just fall into fads about different type of diets, but really just be mindful about what you're eating and creating a healthy relationship with food and the food timing as well, I think is so important. And the fact that what's really exciting to me about this whole episode and also the research that's being done in gut health is that a lot of these diseases are preventable. There's no reason to lose hope and there's alternative ways to think about and treat these diseases. And it's not just stuck with you for life. And I think that's really hopeful and promising. So I think that's a perfect encapsulation of season one and the topics and themes. We hope you really enjoyed it. So we're very excited for season two. So we'll keep you guys posted on what's to come. If you like what you hear and you enjoy our episodes and podcasts, please don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel for updates on new episodes and more content. And we'd love to hear from you guys. Please do let us know what your thoughts are and any questions or ideas or comments. And yeah, we always love hearing from all of you. So until next time on Sleep On It, take care, guys. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much.